HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Seth Goldman, founder of Eat the Change, a platform of food brands on a mission to create chef-crafted, nutrient-dense snacks and beverages that are kind to the planet. As part of this mission, Eat the Change makes snacks like cosmic carrot chews and mushroom jerky and just launched Just Ice Tea. Seth is also the co-founder of Plant Burger, chair of the board of Beyond Meat, and the co-founder of Honest Tea, the OG better for you and better for the planet tea that essentially made ingredient and quality standards like organic, fair trade, and non-GMO mainstream. Seth has been widely recognized for his entrepreneurial success and social impact, and he's considered an industry leader, mentor, and change agent. And Seth, I am thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alia. It was a very kind introduction. Yeah, I worked on it for a little while. <laughs> I didn't want it to be like overly solicitous, but I did want it to like give you your props. So well, thank hopefully. you. One one small correction is I'm co-founder of Eat the Change. Uh, my co-founder is Spike Mendelson, and and so he's a co-founder in both Plant Burger and Eat the Change. Amazing. All right. Well, we will definitely give him that credit, and I will make note that the co-founder. Yes. Um, so let's just you know. Anyone who doesn't know your story, go Google it, um, because I really want to get into sort of nitty gritty here, but um, we can definitely kind of do a little bit of a quick synopsis. Um, Going back to 1997, what were you doing and what was the sort of American beverage landscape like? Uh, Yeah. So I was working for an investment company called Calvert Group, which offered Mutual funds, today we call them ESG, but they did, you know, socially responsible screening, not investing in tobacco or companies with bad environmental records. And um, I was enjoying the work. It definitely was mission related. It wasn't as entrepreneurial as um, 
I think I wanted uh, to work in. And so I was sort of thinking about what would be something I could create that I could get really excited about. And I literally was looking at everything from nonprofit organizations to a biotech idea that I had been involved with in business school. Um, and it was kind of, uh, these things kind of co all co came together when I had gone to New York City in the, uh, I think it was September of 97 to make a presentation for Calvert to a bunch of institutional investors. And after the presentation, I, uh, and by the way, institutional investors in general are not entrepreneurial. They're sort of the antithesis, right? They're sort mm -hmm. of, <laughs> so I, I might've sort of felt like, oh, this, this work is, I enjoy the mission element, but this is not entrepreneurial right. to talk to these kind of folks. So then I went for a run in Central Park and after the run, I was thirsty. And then I got to the beverage cooler to buy, you know, a drink. And that's where I said, wait a minute, there's such a hole on these shelves. There's such a, there's all these sweet drinks and all these watery drinks and there's nothing in the middle. And then that kind of catalyzed the thought process that led to me leaving my work at Calvert to launch Honesty. And, and just, you know, as you know, the landscape there, everything was super sweet. The average calorie for a bottled tea and for most drinks was 100 calories per eight ounce serving. So super sweet drinks. And, wow. Yeah. yeah and everything was made with high fructose corn syrup. There just was very little. The only variety was color, you know, bubble, no bubble or some kind of package, but just not much variety at all. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I don't even, you know, people have a hard time remembering what it was like before Instagram. And that was 2012. <laughs> and this was literally 14 years before yeah. that. So right. um, there, were no, there were no less sweet drinks. There were no organic bottled drinks. There were right. no fair trade certified bottled drinks. Either. No. And so from my understanding, um, you went back to a professor that you had um, in business school you came up with honesty. I believe he came up with the name honesty. Yeah, he had the name. Yeah. yeah. So it's Barry Nelbuff. He's my. He was my professor of strategy and uh, you know um, competition, sort of competitive strategy. Right. And um, we had when I was a student, we had studied uh, a case study of the beverage industry and, and agreed that that was a missing area. So as soon as I sort of revisited uh, this opportunity. I reached out to Barry and he had just come back from India where he had been studying the tea industry mm. and among other insights had come up with the name Honesty. And that was kind of a perfect uh, name for what I was interested in. And, and uh, I, I left my day job. He kept his job as, as a professor and he's still right. a professor at Yale. I mean, it's, it's very cool. And then so basically you, you started this thing, you know, we, I mean, you launched it, which is no easy feat. You started, I believe in Whole Foods Mid-Atlantic. Right. Um, and then tell me, I mean, I guess basically like right now there's a, you know, a lot of talk about like better for you, better for the planet. Are they mutually exclusive? Do they have to be? Um, but with honesty, like you really were like a game changer there, you brought in the idea of better for you and better for the planet really kind of, I feel like similarly to the way that Annie's kind of redefined better for you food in a lot of ways, I feel like maybe honest did it for beverage. Um, if you think that's a mm -hmm. fair assessment. I'm not sure that's totally fair. And I'll, I'll, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Annie's. They've done a great job of expanding organic mm -hmm. uh, ingredients, but I don't think of Annie's, um, you know, for example, Annie's has a line of fruit chews. They are organic. 
Mm -hmm. But when you look at the nutrition panel, there's right. nothing there that makes them nutritionally uh, different than, you know, what you find in uh, essentially gummy bears. Right. So I think where we, you know, where honest was, we really leaned into making sure that, you know, every aspect to the extent we possible, um, right. health elements, the yeah. organic piece. Um, so I, I do think that's an important distinction to make. And yeah. I think it's one we're doing again here with Eat the Change that, you know, we, yes, we do want to satisfy people's thirst or their hunger, uh, but we also want to help, you know, uh, advance their health in terms of um, giving them nutrient dense foods without sure. you know, some of that. Yeah, I think I just, I'm like, I go back to sort of like the OG brands, you know, I think yeah, a lot of people right. in our space, especially sort of like younger emerging brands, they, they don't even really, I don't, I don't know that a lot of them, I mean, I think they were obviously alive, but they weren't consuming and they weren't shopping and they weren't thinking about brands or, you know, products in the late nineties. Um, right. So I guess what I mean is, you know, that there was a sea change yeah, around that time. These options. That, I, that I agree with. Yeah. And that you were really, you know, a big part of that sea change um, in the beverage world for sure. And I guess one of my questions is, you know, what do you think, what do you think kind of created the perfect storm in mm -hmm. terms of the tailwinds that, you know, obviously you came up with a great brand. It was a simple concept. You're obviously well known as a super leader, but there were probably some other tailwinds going on. And I'm just kind of curious if you could look back and sort of yeah. say, like, these are the well, things that came together. You know, a lot of it, I would say, we definitely had to sort of force the issue. So people had some vague aspiration to be environmentally, you know, more responsible with their shopping habits. They didn't know exactly what form that would take. So I don't think anyone disagrees with the idea of buying products that have less chemical pesticides or less, you know, right. sort of lighter environmental footprints. Um, it, so organic, the organic certification certainly helped. And we were the first organic bottle tea. And so helping to make that connection for people was important. Yeah. And then again, with fair trade, you know, that I don't think people, people certainly had the aspiration to make sure they could buy products they could feel good about in terms of the sourcing. But once again, they didn't know exactly what form that would take. And so fair trade, I think helped, um, you know, but, but in both cases, we were doing a lot of the marketing for those seals that, you know, it's not like there's a mm -hmm. big organic conspiracy somewhere saying we're going to make these available everywhere. So we, we right. were the ones doing that. And the same with fair trade, they're, they're, they're a small organization. And so, you know, we became, uh, I, you know, certainly one of the most widely distributed fair trade items, meaning gaining access into whether it's restaurants or, or convenience stores or, you know, mainstream stores that um, people had seen. And then I think one of our highest impacts was what we did with Honest Kids, where we brought the organic lower, um, lower calorie kids drink. And, and that got distributed not just into the natural channel, but all, and it's still distributed now in McDonald's and Wendy's and Subway right. and Chick-fil-A. And so for millions of Americans, Honest Kids became the first organic product they could taste. And, and so when they experienced it in our restaurant and they enjoyed it, then they could sort of say, oh, now I understand. That organic, not only is that something to not be afraid of, I should be mm -hmm. looking for it elsewhere. And I should be buying it for my family wherever I can. It's interesting because even though like we talk about these things as tailwinds, that they you were basically doing branding for your product, <laughs> your company, 
the fair trade organization, the organic yeah. certification or like the USDA, yeah. like yeah. you were, you had a lot of consumer education yeah. to do. That's right. And when you put it that way, tailwind is probably misleading. Yeah, exactly. That, I would say actually, that, yeah. Not only that, we were selling a product that was less sweet. And, you know, right. even though we knew there was a market for it, it was certainly a headwind because most people yeah. were just used to those sweet drinks. And then there was that double challenge. So most people were used to sweet drinks and the people who might like a less sweet drink didn't think to buy it, um, didn't think to buy bottled tea because they all thought they were too sweet. Right. So the customers we wanted to reach weren't in the category. And so we had to put a lot of effort and creativity in finding ways to, to bring people in. You know, I mean, I always kind of do this like one, two, three back to me thing, because obviously this, I, this whole podcast was started because I started this brand and I had no idea what I was doing. So every interview is like a secret way of getting good advice, but it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of us in the sense that we, you know, Haven's kitchen sauces are in a part of the store where people aren't used to seeing sauces. Mm -hmm. We pride ourselves on having the quality of sauce that you would make at home, which a lot of people think like, I do make this at home. You know, it's almost like what you said, your consumer, there are people who want these higher sort of more quality sauces, but we have to kind of go out and find those consumers and they're not necessarily sitting there waiting for right. us, um, which is helpful to segue into sort of the next piece, um, which is your, your sort of iconic marketing. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think, you know, I'm going to revert back to sort of the Coke thing, but as long as we're on this flow, so you had a lot of consumer education to do. And like you said, the people who were out there who were looking for fair trade or organic weren't necessarily looking in your category because they just assumed it was kind of not for them. Um, there was no social media. Uh, again, it was the, you know, now 1998 to early 2000s. Um, the one that I hear a lot about is, you know, the most honest city in America, right, um, right. guerrilla marketing tactic. And I just like everyone to hear a little bit about that and what you did. And, you know, does it translate to today or is it mm -hmm. a sweet sort of story of ye old? Uh, well, the first thing we did is we hired really creative and energetic people and passionate people to be to head field marketing. And so the very first task in field marketing is literally getting in stores and giving out samples. That's still going to be a core work and, and the core part, you know, when we are investing in field marketing, that's, I don't know, 75% of what we do. But then there's always, you know, especially when you get the kind of team together, and you encourage them to, to be daring and to try new things, you see all kinds of interesting ideas emerge. And so one of the most popular ones that you mentioned was this, we called it the Honesty Index. And so um, it was basically taking field sampling and putting it within a much broader context. And that's always great when you can do that. And it started with this question of how honest are people? And of course, <laughs> that tied in so nicely to our name. And, and the way we um, tested it was we set up what we called honest stores, um, and you know, just in a public area, and we had a sign that said "honest store, dollar a bottle, honor system," and then we'd have a a lucite box people could put a dollar into, but there was no official, you know, cash red right. sort of cashier or anybody in a uniform. 
but there was somebody watching from you know a little distance just monitoring how many people paid a dollar to put in the box <laughs> and how many people just took a bottle. Right. And then we shared those results uh, and that became a really fun kind of evergreen story. We did it every year. Uh, and, and so among the highlights was that it showed how honest people were. So that was a nice thing to share. You know, over 90, 93% of people put money in the box. Uh, and then we were able to share this city one year was more honest. This yeah, another year, a different city was more honest. And that so that was kind of a feel-good story. Yeah. Um, and uh, the one reason we weren't able to keep doing it is because people stopped, started carrying a lot less cash around, right? Mm -hmm. So it was good while it lasted <laughs> right. for that part of the right. Um, the 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 program but we um you know there's other other applications we can find to do something like that so but that was a great experiential marketing um campaign yeah and i guess you know i mean i heard you know a couple weeks ago i guess goldman like stopped their coffee program and there was a coffee company that like rolled up to goldman offices with a van and coffee i've seen some stuff kind of in that guerrilla marketing tactic world, but I've seen less of it, um, I guess, pandemic and, and whatnot. And I think mm -hmm. perhaps also because maybe it's just uh, the world has gotten so digital. Um, but I guess I'm wondering, like, do you, do you think that kind of thing would work today? Are you planning that kind well, of thing for uh, today? We are certainly looking into creating similar experiences. We won't, we won't do the same right. exact experience. And, and of course, with a name like Just Ice Tea, it wouldn't, make, it wouldn't be as right. uh, relevant to do something around. How just are uh, people? Honestly. Yeah, You could do but like we'll, little mini trials. <laughs> we'll, 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 I'm, I'm confident we'll be able to figure out some fun ways to interact with consumers. That's all we're talking about. Really. Right, just interacting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. And on that marketing sort of... Um, Tack. Is there anything it, between then and now, marketing-wise, that's really exciting to you that you're looking forward to sink your teeth into? Like, I obviously you've been involved with Beyond for sure, but yeah, yeah. so many events that we we've got scheduled. We just had one got rained out, but Taste of Bethesda, because we're based in Bethesda, Maryland, just got rained out this past weekend. But those are sort of um, signature events we get we get involved with, and and we have such a um, uh, a deeply supportive community here. We we are doing a, on October thirteenth. We're having an, a homecoming event. So, uh, you know, basically bringing uh, organic bottled tea. The capital of organic bottled tea comes right. back to Bethesda um, oh, after I having moved around. And so right. um, we'll we'll do that. And we we've got some of the local high schools. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be a marching band, but you know, just making it a fun community event right. um, to give people a sense of local pride and investment and ownership in the brand. And that's certainly something we, we did with Honest Tea. And we'll look forward to doing the same here with Just Ice Tea. Amazing. Okay, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to go back in time a little bit since I just jumped into the marketing thing. We'll be right back. This week on Heritage Radio Network's Meet and Three, we're spilling secrets. Do you know what is in that makes it banned? I do not, other than it being a proprietary blend of something that's supposed to be performance enhancing. If you go through the drive-through in reverse, so your car is fully backwards, you get a free chocolate shake. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm back with Seth Goldman, and we are talking about Honest Tea um, in about 2008, I think. You got a phone call. Is that uh, right? Really? I guess it was 2007. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I got a phone call from somebody I knew who I had met from a, with a different company who was now working at Coca-Cola. And he said, you know, we've created this new division to uh, invest in and build um, the next billion dollar brand. So it was called Venturing and Emerging Brands at Coca-Cola. And they have done their whole process of looking at brands to invest in. And they looked at thousands of brands. Then they narrowed it down to 100. Then they narrowed down to 20, then to seven, and then to one. And Honesty was that brand that they think uh, is has the potential to become a, a billion dollar brand. And we'd like to discuss either investing or acquiring the company. Right. And so- And where, where was, were you in the, I mean, yeah. you were like 20, I think, 20 million in sales. Yeah, 23 million in sales. We were growing, but we had also started to run into challenges in terms of um, scaling our distribution. We were getting pushback from companies like Snapple that didn't want us using their distributors because they thought it was a competitive product. Uh, and so that created challenges for us um, in terms of how we're going to get to all these accounts. We had, we had a lot of interest from accounts around the country, but we didn't have the ability to reach them. Right. You know, whether it was CDS or Target or Safeway. Yeah, for sure. And so we needed that national distribution puzzle solved. Right. And so I said, Look, I'm happy to have a conversation. And um, then it was almost exactly 14 years ago that because it, it happened over Expo East that the Coca-Cola folks came to the office and we chatted and uh, talked and felt like there was some good um, mutual opportunity. We needed distribution and we needed growth capital and and uh, but I made it clear we weren't ready to sell the business, and so right. they were interested in you know having me continue to be involved to help grow the business. So that that worked as well. And so one of the things that I you know there are I don't know if Coke still has that investment incubator wing, but obviously like a bunch of the larger you know CPG strategics do. And I think one of the things that people sort of caveat with investments from them is what if they don't follow on or what if they don't actually buy the company that could be some sort of a red flag to another strategic right. was there any like what were your did you make like a pros and a cons list mm -hmm. on a whiteboard somewhere in your diary yeah. and and like no, no we talked about yeah. it thoroughly and you know my co-founder barry um is it literally teaches negotiations so he had a lot of good insights in fact he wrote we wrote a book about the whole experience called Mission in a Bottle. Mm -hmm. And then Barry just published a book called Splitting the Pie, which he covers a lot of the negotiation. But we, we certainly thought about it and we realized that if we were selling 40% of the company, which is what Coca-Cola wanted to buy, there was no way we should give up um, the right to make them buy the rest of the company if we wanted to, to do that. I mean, they were buying the right to buy the rest of the company, but we couldn't. The right, As you say, the worst case scenario is they buy 40% of the company. But then they don't buy the rest and then no one else wants it because they're going to think, oh, something's off. Right. So we, as part of the negotiation, we also got a put, which meant we had the right to sell them the business if they didn't exercise their call to buy the business. So got it. that was okay. a key point. Yeah, that is a key. Everyone listening, mm -hmm. get a put. 
Okay, mm-hmm. and read the books. <laughs> and then you sold it, but you continued to run the business for like eight years after that. Yeah, that, it was it was a yeah. really, um, you know, I'd say collaborative partnership. So for the first three years, we really had um, our own control. By 2015, we started to become part of their broader portfolio. And so I still was involved, but I shifted to a halftime role because I was also getting involved in Beyond Meat. Uh, I took on the role of executive chair, which was a halftime role. And so I split my time between the two um, businesses and we continued to scale on as T. We grew toward, by the time, I think by 2017, we were at about 175 million in sales as a brand uh, with both kids and T. Um, and then at the end of 2019, I, I uh, moved on. I, I had um, was eager to create some new, new ventures and that's sort of where I, I transitioned away. I am sure that there is another book to be written, but I'm going to ask you to write one yes takeaway from working at a place like Coca-Cola and one no takeaway from a place like Coca-Cola. Like things that you, things that maybe as a founder of an emerging brand, you were like, huh, this is actually a really good thing that this very large corporate company does. I'm going to institutionalize this in my next role and a big no. Yeah. Well, the big plot positive was the scale, right? We started, we went from 15,000 accounts to over 150,000 accounts, including all those chains, the QSR chains I had mentioned earlier, McDonald's, Subway, Chick-fil-A, right. Wendy's. Uh, we also uh, were able to launch internationally. That was really exciting. So those things were all positive in terms of the, you know, the, the, the negatives <laughs> and the downsides. Um, that it clearly uh, the entrepreneurial part just faded. You can't you can't move quickly. Um, you can't uh, respond to the marketplace. You can't innovate the way you need to just to, to you know as a leader in that channel. So that was a downside. And then ultimately, you know, after I left, um, somebody somewhere started focusing only on numbers and not on um, impact and oppor- future opportunity. And that's what led to them. Um, their decision to first not invest in honesty the way they invested in their other brands and then uh, eventually decide to discontinue honesty. Right. We're going to get to that after I ask you a few questions about your leadership, because along with marketing and along with impact, um, you're very well respected as a founder and a leader. And I don't know how much you know about the listeners here, but I don't know actually everything about the listeners here either. But I think it's a pretty safe guess that most of us are either founders or operators in emerging brands. Um, And I guess there are a couple of questions that I feel like I'm going to ask on behalf of all of us. Mm -hmm. One are the main things that you look for in a team and this is basically like sub 10 million so everyone's still a bit of a swiss army knife although there is some specialization and you're starting to maybe bring in some real experience um but i'm just curious on the on the real attributes and the way that you sort of evaluate when you So one of the things I think is really um, important is no one, I I think, is only a specialist, right? Like, of course, people have certain areas of talent and experience, and we'll obviously look to them for that. But everyone has opinions. And so, you know, when I'm in a room with people, I expect that whole person to be there. I don't know, you know, 
like, okay, we'll talk about finances. So now let me ask, you know, this Jane, what she thinks, and then basically not expect to hear from her ever again. Um, so I, I want everybody, if I'm in, uh, in a meeting and, and whoever's on the meeting, I want them engaged around every aspect of the discussion, not just their specialty. Yeah. Um, you know, they can, they may not, they may not have as much background, so they could ask it in the form of a question, but I, I want everybody to feel a sense of ownership of the business because, you know, in terms of the key thing, everyone has to be an owner. So all of the companies I've been involved with, you know, stock options are basically mandatory. But I want everybody to feel like this is an, an organization I'm proud of, that I yep. have an ownership stake in, and that I have a right to have input on because I'm yep. an owner. Um, so that's critical. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, what's so neat, so we, we've got 16 people working at Eat the Change now, nine of them, so more than half, all worked uh, at Honesty before. So these are people yeah. who um, have, you know, great experience, but also people who I have extreme confidence in and frankly just love, I mean, I love them as people. I love working with them as a team. And uh, I guess in some way they love the experience because they, 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 no one forced them to go. Yeah, right, back. for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Skills in you as a founder. I mean, obviously, it's probably hard to remember having that brand at under ten million in sales. But well, you know, I got obviously, a brand here at under ten million. Yeah, in sales, I guess so. I guess that's true. Okay, so what do you think? You know, we need to yeah. really keep in mind um, I, yeah. to hone ourselves. I think one really important quality is humility. You just have to recognize that you don't have all the answers. And so, one of the things I I really believe in is empowering. You know, obviously hiring great people and empowering them to do their work. So, you know, I, I speak to my sales and marketing people uh, and operations people every day, but I, it's not me telling them what to do. It's asking questions. It's entrusting them and empowering them. You know, of course, along the way, I want to make sure I understand the decision. And I've had enough exposure to each of those disciplines that I can ask the questions in, in an informed way. Right, um, but ultimately, I have to empower them. If I if I'm not going to empower them, I shouldn't hire them because yeah. um, I'm not going to get their best effort, their best energy. Um, yeah, and, and it goes back to sort of what you're looking for. You're looking for people that you know want to be empowered and right. and right. right. Okay, so this is a little tough one, um, but I feel like lately I've been hearing from I'll, maybe we're all tired, and mm-hmm. maybe it's just been a really strange couple of years in, you know, the world and, uh, you know, in CPG. But I think a lot of founders are wondering if we stay on as CEOs. Once we build the foundation, we figure out the brand and the identity. And and to some extent, a lot of us, um, you know, obviously we'll always be founders and engaged in like the marketing and the vision and the innovation, but the day-to-day, you know, business ops and finance and, you know, whatever it is. Um, How did, how, I mean, I know it's a hard one to evaluate, but it's kind of, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, are we founders Hmm. or are we CEOs? Yeah, it just depends on on the individual. I mean, I can tell you for me, um, I love every stage of this. So I love um, the, the, that creative, challenging process of building something. And then I love scaling it. Um, where I probably, and one reason I decided to leave Coke in 2019 was, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in just maintenance. And so 
you know, when, when I looked at the finance plans for 2020 and Coke was um, not going to be investing in Honest Tea, I'm like, well, that's then I'm, there's not a role for me that that's going to be meaningful. I'm not interested in basically presiding over a brand that's not going to continue to grow. So I think as long as for me, and I can only really answer yeah. for me, as long as you still um, get the chance to have a challenger mindset, um, and it does, it's not always about money. It's about, you know, taking on, um, going after challenges, um, then, then I'm in and, but you know, other people approach it differently. Some people are just the creative and they want to see their idea come forth, but they they know they're not good at execution. So it just depends. Um, and, and, and different companies I've been involved with, I've had that conversation with the founder and, and sometimes it was the right decision to move on whereas right. other times it was like you know um or no just move over <laughs> move over exactly yeah, yeah. let you be the visionary and let somebody else execute this yeah and it's funny because you know we talk we all kind of I have a lot of these conversations obviously with a lot of sort of you know founders at my stage and you don't want to spook anybody you know I'm not I don't I, don't don't anyone go get nervous that I'm doing anything mm-hmm. all the people listening to this that are nervous but you know I mean I think it's something that we don't talk about often that we grapple with internally. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, always good to have a yeah. sounding board, it, it, whether it, and it could be a, a, a domestic, you know, part, merit partner, or it could be a advisor or a board member, um, could be a you know fellow member of the team. But you really want to be able to talk these things through. It's, this is stuff is too hard and too complicated to do your own. And that's why, as you notice, all the businesses I've been involved with, I've always. Um, you know, done it with people. I mean, and, and right. you know, I can say it's worked out. So it's not like I've ever, oh, I wish I hadn't shared my ownership with somebody. I'm, I'm yeah. a believer that you, know, you expand the pie when you bring great people to it. So um, I don't think anyone should be trying to figure out those issues on their own. Okay. Next question about this particular little area. So some folks kind of refer to this like 8 million in sales plus or minus a couple as like mm-hmm. a valley of death. Have you heard that? Yeah. yeah well, neither land. You're neither so big yeah. that you can be profitable, but you're neither so small that you can just, you know, raise money and hope, you know, you'll just grow through it. So it's yeah. Just, yeah. Any advice for those of us who may be in neither <laughs> yeah. land? I you prefer gotta, neither land to the valley of death. I like yeah, that that's much not better. The, the yeah. Term. No. yeah. You got to keep, keep innovating. So if 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 what you're doing is growing with what you've got, then you got to get to more places. If it's growing, but it's not going to be enough to get you to that 10 million or more mark, you've got to um, keep innovating. You've got to keep whether it's new packaging, new uh, ingredients, new formulas, new recipes. You've got to find um, some um, additional element. And uh, you know, it's, it's some. I, my, uh, I used to, have, I have a great friend and, and he's been a partner in a lot of my businesses um, named Chuck Muth. And he said, look, there's three ways to grow sales. It is either to sell more of what you're currently doing. So that's more use. That might mean more marketing, uh, it, it sell it through the existing outlets, add additional outlets. Um, so that would be, you know, getting to new places or add additional items. It, it, it's, when you put it that way, it's, like, it's pretty basic, but that is, there's no other way to Grow sales, so you got to do you got to do one of those three, um, yeah, or a blend of them. And this might tie into the the last sort of mini question here is you know you obviously you've been in this game for a really long time. You know a lot of people. 
you know a lot of founders, you've seen things go well, you've seen things, I imagine, go not so well. Sure. Um, what would you say are sort of common mistakes either that founders or, you know, mm. early stage companies make yeah. that you can sort of protect us from or pitfalls yeah. that we should avoid? You know, uh, well, let's say you're in the Netherlands, and so you decide, well, we've got to, we're not growing well enough, so we got to go get more um, where every, joining the, the rest of the crowd. So I've seen brands that were organic, and then they said, well, if we make it not organic, we can, you know, make it cheaper, and that'll help us grow faster. Or I, I've seen a company that say, well, you know, um, that wasn't the less sweet tea space as well. If we make it sweeter, it'll sell more. And that, then you're basically killing what the brand is about. And so I've right. seen people do that. So, um, and frankly, look, we were in some tough spots with honesty. I mean, I, I, I we, we glossed over it, but those, those first 10 years, we were selling uphill. So that those headwinds right. were real. Yeah. And, but we, we really did stick to what we were doing that was different and that challenger mindset. Um, yeah. The other, the other mistake, frankly, the worst mistake is to, to lose the challenger mindset and say, well, we need to go raise a bunch of money. And, and do more ads and do more um, slotting and spending. And then you do that. And then, then you, you can't su sustain that kind of spending when you're losing money. And then all right. of a sudden, you know, I mean, the bottom falls out. Well, it's funny. That one seemed a lot more likely six months ago. Yeah. I think, yeah. um, you know, the, the zeitgeist has changed so much back toward that profitability and like discipline. margins yeah. and discipline. discipline. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a bummer for the people who got caught like mid, you know, you said grow, you know, <laughs> you yeah. said it didn't matter, you know? Um, but, you know, I think that that, that pitfall, yeah. hopefully, you Here's know, what I tell my team and I tell any entrepreneurs like you, your job is you want growth and you want gross margin. And as long as both of those things are happening, I don't see you'll never, but you rarely, you'll rarely have to apologize for losing money. So if you have gross margin in your product and you're seeing growth, that's sustainable, right? It's not that you're, you know, buying discounting it. too much yeah. or you're just you're exactly buying the product back, basically, then, yep. then you're not going to get, uh, you'll, you'll be rewarded by investors. Yeah. And I, it's funny because this is a little, maybe off topic a little bit, but at the beginning you were talking about, um, it seems like maybe when you were first building Honest, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it even feels like even five years ago, the channels were more clearly defined. There was a natural organic channel. There was a conventional channel. There was a mass mm -hmm. channel. It yeah. feels like we've got people going into Target before they're in mm -hmm. Whole Foods you know, yeah. every, it feels like things have gotten a little blurry. And I guess- Not to mention e-commerce too, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah. But I guess, you know, I was talking to someone today about like a pretty big mass retailer. And I was like, I, re I really think you need to have like crazy gross margins to be able to make that a profitable sales channel. If it's a marketing channel, it's a marketing channel. But mm. to make it a profitable sales channel, you kind of need to be up here because you're going to spend a lot. Um, and most emerging brands aren't, they don't have those gross margins, especially right. in food and beverage, maybe in beauty, you know, but it seems like, I don't know, how, 
what is this making you think just as I'm staying? I don't even want to like influence your thoughts here. I just want to get like your gut response to. Yeah, I, I'm, I am. Um, I really think gross margin is, is the, the biggest uh, priority uh, for yeah. these businesses. You have to, it's just no point in selling a product that you lose money on. So you have to find a way to get gross margin. It doesn't have to be huge, but there has to be something and you have to have a path to getting it to be larger. Um, so that really is something. And it means if you, you know, there's no point in going to a large mass retailer and losing money every, every sale. That's just, there's just no, cause you'll never, if you can't work, if you don't have a path to positive gross margin, then you're just going to lose more money that way. And it, and it gets more expensive more quickly. So yeah. in a sense, the worst thing you could do is succeed in a large mass retailer with a negative gross margin. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, even calculating that, honestly, now we're just now starting to really be able to dig into that margin per account, you know, per skew per account. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not that pretty in some of them, you know, I mean, <laughs> they're different. They're wildly different. Um, and, and you know, ultimately, you, it all up. you have to be able to, you have to be honest. And, and, and you know, I always talk about transparency with these retailers. So you know, we got approached by a large mass retailer and, and who wanted to do something. And it's hard. On the one hand, you're like, oh, I can't say no. On the right. other hand, I can't say yes. So you just got to be say, here, here's why I can't say yes. And if there's a solution, let's explore it. And if not, let's talk. Let's keep, you know, we'll, we'll reach back out when we figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the tough decisions that I think you know, a lot of the guests who've been coming on in the last couple of months have been saying, go line by line, go skew by skew, yeah. go account also, by account, you yeah. know. Make sure it makes sense with your strategy too. At Beyond Meat, we had a large national retailer that wanted to carry the Beyond Burger when we were launching it, but they wanted to put it in the produce section. And we just said, we, you know, obviously it's hard for us to say no to you guys, but we have to be in the meat section. And technically you could buy this product and put it in your produce section. But if you do that, you won't get any support from us in terms of we're not going to invest in it. And so right. it's not going to work. Um, and they, they came around, but you know, there was a period where we worried, man, did we just say no to one of the largest retailers? So going back, because we haven't really touched on beyond meat. So you were I'm like going all over the timeline here, but I think it's good. It's funny. The, the way that you naturally segue into the next topic a little bit. Um, so it's 2015, you're still at Honest, and then you you decided to split your time um, right. with Beyond and Coca-Cola. I mean, I think I know the answers to this, but I'd love to hear you talk about why Beyond Meat, um, you know, where you think things are in the plant-based meat world. You know, there is a lot of discussion about all of it. Um, I just would like to hear it from the meatless horses. Now. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that so, just rolled off my tongue. I don't well, know where that, that came from, but thank you. A meatless horse, but um, yeah. yeah, so, so um, I, I had been on the board of a wonderful company called Happy Baby, um, which mm -hmm. ended up selling to Danone. And that was in, I think, around 2012. And so um, my, so I was like, oh, then maybe there's another company I can help grow and get started. And it happened that in 2012, my wife read this article about this company getting started out in California called Beyond Meat that was looking to sell plant-based meat that perfectly replicated the taste and texture of animal meat. And 
our family, having been vegetarian at the time, um, was always sort of looking for that better right. veggie burger. We'd been disappointed frequently with the quality and taste of, of veggie burgers. So she said at the time, if you can help this company succeed, that would be a, a wonderful gift and, and you know, you should reach out to them. So I, I did. I sent an email to info at beyondmeat.com. Lucky said, them, man. Well, yeah. lucky me. I mean, they, they responded and, and um, I got involved as an investor, advisor, board member, and then just enjoyed that engagement so much that um, as I was thinking about scaling back my activity with Honest Tea, um, getting involved with Beyond Meat was so important. It was when I uh, joined the company, it was under a million in sales. Um, and so um, it, when I uh, got involved as executive chair, it was scaling really quickly. Things were getting more complicated. We needed to figure out growth and international and, and financing. And I got involved in all of those things as well as several others. And, um, you know, so just to put it in perspective, as I said, back in 2012, uh, Beyond Meat was doing less than a million dollars in sales. Today, 10 years later, it's doing over 400 million in sales. So while there have certainly been ups and downs, and, and mm -hmm. they're going to continue to be ups and downs, um, I don't know many other companies that grew from zero to 400 million uh, and transformed, you know, a category. Right. Um, so. I'm sure there'll be more ups and more downs ahead, uh, but it's been a really fun and impactful, not to mention for, for my family, who, who's now vegan, uh, a wonderful addition to our diet. And you are, you know, it's funny because I obviously did my reading homework ahead of time. Um, but one of the things that kind of comes up in a lot of your interviews um, is you're a long game player. Mm -hmm. and yeah, you I'm see not a flipper. No, you're not a flipper. You're a guy who sees around corners. And I thought the way that you sort of said, you know, I don't remember what year you referenced, but, you know, at some point in the grocery market, and I remember it, yeah. there was milk, there was 2% milk, maybe there was skim milk, and there was soy milk. Right. Um, and well, there wasn't even soy milk. And, you know, when I was growing up, soy milk wasn't in the dairy case. It was in a, in some the kind of Tetra pack in the, yeah. Bag. In a natural food store, it wasn't in mainstream grocery. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I believe what you basically said was, you know, this is here to stay. Everyone knows, you know, 99% less water, 95 or whatever it is, percent less land. Um, they're going right to keep, yeah. right. They're going to keep innovating with the, you know, all of the things that make it more, you know, palatable and easy and less expensive and all of that, but that it's not going anywhere. Um, is, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like that's where you're kind of coming from on, on yeah. this category. Yeah, so go back to the dairy category. So today now 16% of the dairy category is plant-based. Um, so, you know, a, a significant portion of uh, meat is much less. It's, it's basically at 1% is plant-based meat but I'm confident it will continue to expand. And, and part of that is due to the fact that the, the category is going to continue to innovate and the cost difference will continue mm -hmm. to come down. Yep. Uh, and these environmental issues that we're seeing all around the world are not going to get uh, better. So, I mean, the climate impacts we're seeing, whether it's hurricanes or droughts, all of this, it's just, you just can't ignore it. You can't pretend it's not real. And so what we, and when we chose the name eat the change, it was, yeah recognition it's a call to accountability like everyone has to understand how what they eat impacts the climate and you know you may you may consciously say well i'm just eating because i think i only want to eating only for indulgence but 
uh, I think a lot of people want to eat for indulgence and uh, think about their climate footprint as well. Yeah, and and let's let's move on to eat the change because you know I have been hearing a lot lately, almost like this weird juxtaposition: good for you or good for the planet. And it's been strange because mm-hmm. you know I, I'm like my background is in sustainability and food systems, so there is no such that that's just yeah. not accurate, right? That's it can't a false be dichotomy. right a hundred percent. Um, and so when you were thinking about what you wanted to do next, I mean, was it clear to you in 2019 that you had another startup in you? Were you looking You know, for- it's funny. I, so in the fall of 2019, I knew I was going to wrap up my time with Honest Tea, but no, I, I wasn't, I knew I had some new undertaking in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually went through the process of thinking about politics, like, all right, well, should I, should I go into the public arena? I obviously a lot you. of <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I really did do that reflection and, and talk to a lot of friends who have perspectives on that. And your and wife was like, please, for the love of God, don't do that. Yeah. I will say she, she was not in favor of it. Uh-huh. And she's yeah. a super important um, constituent right. in these decisions. Mm-hmm. But you know, look, uh, uh, a startup, even even after we've been through it, that's no. Um, she was like, please don't do that either, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. She she actually knew that's where I get you know um, my energy, and she she believed in what we're doing. As she as she's just been the most loyal, not loyal, subservient loyal, but loyal, engaged, committed, and supportive partner. Um, and so here as well, she's she's like, you know, you could do this. You should you know, go after um, snack food. It's a new, new opportunity. Um, Spike is the perfect partner because he's a foodie and you're not. Right. And, and, um, you know, you could, you could sort of make another, another impact. So um, obviously she is more than anybody, my um, most important audience in terms of, you know, making sure this was going to be, um, I can feel, I could feel good about it. If she wasn't on yeah. board, it would have worked. Yeah. And so then you and Spike, you were like, okay, we want to do this thing. Did you know you wanted to build a platform? Did you know you wanted to be, I think you said yeah. you, you knew you wanted to be in snacks. Yeah. Did you, we, how did you attack this? Like, Yeah, how, we yeah. really started with a much broader approach, which was, okay, well, if we're serious about climate, then we need to think about addressing food. And obviously Beyond Meat was doing its thing. And, and frankly, honestly, he was doing its thing. So, man, I wasn't going to go into beverage. I wasn't going to go into to meat analogs, but what's another right. area? Um, and so it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let's start a mushroom jerky company. It's let's right. start a company. Let's create guardrails for ourselves that help define what we're about. And so the first one is, of course, everything's going to be plant-based or, or fungi-based because fungi technically aren't plants, but right. know, no animal products. Let's make sure everything's organic because that's a, something that's always been core to what we do. And it's, it's, if we're serious about trying to cut down on um, chemical toxins in our environment and in our bodies, we need to do that. Uh, and then we started putting on additional filters, like let's, let's think about supporting biodiversity. So let's eliminate mm-hmm. from any recipe the six most common crops that represent over 57% of all agricultural production. And that meant you know, corn, soy, wheat, potatoes, rice, or sugar cane. Uh, and then let's look at the water in, in, in footprint and the food waste footprint. How do we minimize those? Uh, yeah. And so as, and then also let's make sure everything is nutrient dense, yeah. um, meaning that we're not going to be putting out puffy air or empty calories. 
And then, and then the other piece that was critical is let's make everything delicious. And that's yes. where, you know, how does a chef bring that to life? And so because we're um, co-founders at Plant Burger, I had hosted the team at a mushroom farm to a visit to a mushroom farm where they, you know, they were making a mushroom bacon for a, a barbecue burger. And then um, when we saw and learned about mushrooms, we realized that was an amazing ingredient. Yeah. The perfect magical. one for a chef to, to sort of exact his um, magic on. And so you started, did you start with the jerky or did you yeah, start mushroom with the jerky? Yeah, yeah that's okay. what we started with and, and brought that to market. And then um, shortly after that, I said to Spike, boy, I, I want to um, replicate the success we saw with Honest Kids uh, at Honest Tea, which was a healthier product that, care, that parents loved, kids could get excited about and would go in the lunchbox. And I said, well, how do we do that? And that's where um, uh, what led to the carrot juice, we initially were trying to make it, um, we were just trying to make like a carrot chip and we couldn't get the right texture, but we had some extra carrots and Spike was just playing around and he tried soaking carrot um, coins, little discs in a marinade. And then when he dried them out, they took on a chewy mm, texture. Mm -hmm. and that led to uh, our carrot juice, cosmic carrot juice for kids. And we just launched an adult version of the carrot juice as well. Very cool. And what you did not plan on launching <laughs> was an iced tea. Exactly. Um, we're busy minding our business. Selling yeah, carrots you were just like mushrooms. going along, doing yeah. cosmics, and then yeah. Coke Disco's Honest. Yeah. And I think within, I don't know, six weeks or so, I don't know, it's like crazy. So I, I found yeah. out May 23rd that uh -huh. they were discontinuing it. And there was the requisite, it wasn't requisite, but there was a period of mourning. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. All of yeah. I heard from all of our partners and friends and former employees who just were sick about it. Uh, and then on June 6th, so about two weeks, we uh, decided we're going to go launch our own iced tea brand. Um, first of all, because we, we really cared about the whole supply chain right. and what it meant to the consumers. But as an entrepreneur, it's like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. You mean this $100 million category that we built is basically being vacated by the largest brand? Well, yeah, let's sign us up. So we right. jumped in. And on September 6th, three months later, we launched, we sold our first bottle of just iced tea at a plant burger in New York City. So um, super fast yeah. uh, process. But we did all, all the kosher, organic, and fair trade certifications. Obviously, we had to make some some of the, you know, the, the label printing was a rush job and, and right. things like that. <laughs> I know. I Our corrugate takes like, I think, 16 weeks or something. Like, I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, it doesn't, yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen that quickly. I was it's super proud to of our team. You know, this yeah. a team. As I mentioned earlier, this team knows what to do. And it was just a great, great, um, you know, it, it kind of consumed the summer, but I'm not complaining. Right. It was a great experience. And we just were at Expo East last week where we were selling Just Iced Tea and the response has just been phenomenal. It's amazing. One last question. It's kind of boring and tactical, but for those of us who are considering, you know, other categories, right, to go back to sort of like growth and just showing that you can be in other categories and showing that you're not like a one hit wonder type of thing. Are you, I mean, does your sales team, I would imagine the beverage buyer is different from the snack buyer mm -hmm. um is yeah. it are you now building out different teams to speak to different buyers mm -hmm. to grow different you know i guess yeah. how, how's it's, that in, looking? in some cases it is the same in some cases it's not 
The only cases where we're going to build a different sales team is if we go launch our beverages. For example, we're launching in New York City with a beverage-focused distributor. So we're going to need people on the ground in New York City to sell beverages. And those right. folks probably won't sell the snacks as much. But but our core team is is selling everything. And, Got it. You know, it's 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 basically the same process, just with a different product. Okay. And the last and final question is, if I'm, you know, here chugging along, trying to build my brand, trying to build a team, trying to get my margins in order, Mm -hmm. is there anything you want me to know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) just like what you would say to your friend who was building, you know, you've been through a lot, you've seen a lot. You know, one thing is there's no silver bullet. Like it, it there, it, you know, there's not some great un, unknown magic you're going to expect to unlock, right? And there's not a great magic person who's going to come in and yes. fix all your issues. Like the only the only way through, you know, the only way to get out of it is to go through it. And so, you know, you got to get every aspect done. You've got to really dig in. And 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 the same as an entrepreneur. Like it's funny. It, it can seem, you know, you go to a trade show or you read an article. Oh, they're that's so cool what they do. But like, you know, the, the, the difference is like, I come into work and the office every day. I mean, assuming, you know, I'm, I'm not traveling for, for other related work. Like it's, and to me that, that may not be glorious, but like, you got to get done. You cannot, this isn't a flyby. This isn't a, you know, um, the French queen of England smile and wave and let someone else do the work. Like if you've got to. You got to get under the hood. You got to understand every aspect of the business. You got to engage with your people. Yeah. Even if you, even if you're in, empowering them and delegating to them, you have to um, be connected to what's going on, and you have yeah. to be connected to the marketplace. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I meet who are so excited about their product or about their the science, but they don't know what their price point is. They don't know the shelf um, competition. They don't know how the product looks on the shelf. Um, and so you got to be in the marketplace where that's because that's where it happens. Yep. Yep. All right. Amazing. Seth, thank you so much. Um, Thanks, for Alex. Fun to talk to you. Show. Yeah. Super great talking to you. Really appreciate all the insight. And I mean, everything's going to be a success. I'm kind of psyched about the carrot shoes. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, so fun. what is a carrot shoe? And now I'm like, that sounds like something I would love because I yeah. love that consistency. Um, yeah. They're available in stores, but also on our website too. So yep. eatthechange.com, people can shopify there. Absolutely. Eatthechange.com. Look for Just Ice Tea, which for those of you who missed it, it's also Justice Tea. <laughs> um, Armin, thank you again for engineering and um, everyone listening. I really appreciate it. I wasn't here last week and I got a bunch of messages. So (laughs) all is well. I was just on vacation. Um, But I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.